Good morning, Risen Hope. How are you doing today? I'm expecting in your homes, everybody's saying how they're doing. So turn to somebody next to you. If they're not saying how they're doing, ask them how they're doing. Um, I'm sure Alicia is probably excited right now because it's pouring outside, it's raining. Um, But for people who love the sun, we'll just have to wait till next weekend for that. Um, If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to the same passage we looked at last week, uh, which is the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And as you do that, join your hearts to mine um, in praying that God would be with us this morning as we go into the Word. Father God, we love you. We love you. And as uh, the body of Christ, risen hope, scattered throughout the greater Seattle area, We are joined together and united in seeking you and longing for you. We need you. It's the greatest need we have right now. That is the greatest need our country has right now in the middle of a pandemic with all of the different unrest that we see in this world, with disharmony in politics, with disharmony in uh, racial relationships. Father God, we pray that your spirit would come and bring peace, not only to our country, but Father to the body of Christ, especially us who are gathered here together, seeking you, looking toward you for hope in this world. I pray that your presence would be with us and would saturate each place that we're in and that you would show us something glorious from your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we're going to read through this passage, uh, John 2, verses 1 through 12, once more, and we're going to look at something different than we saw last week. So follow along with me. This is the wedding at Cana. Verse 1 says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from or it came from, though, John tells us, the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, John tells us, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So last week, if you were with us, we talked uh, about how in this story of the wedding feast at Cana, we see the first sign that Jesus did to testify and display his glory to his disciples and to the people who could see it for what it was. And we said that he was, in this particular scene, prefiguring 
his own wedding to his own bride, the church, us, the body of Christ. But today what I'd like to do is us to zero in on something else, not just the, the, the comprehensive view of what Christ was doing in his first sign, but how this sign was actually performed. Think about this for a moment. Jesus, Son of God, the Word become flesh, doesn't need to involve anyone to do this sign. Doesn't need to involve anyone. He doesn't need the servants. He doesn't need the jars. He doesn't even need the water in the jars. He could have simply told the servants, how about you go back and check the containers that held the original wine, and there you'll find that the wine actually has not run out and that there was plenty of wine left. I mean, he does that thing, the same thing effectively in John 6, which we'll get to, where he takes a small loaf, uh, just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he multiplies it. He takes something small, and he multiplies it exponentially. Jesus doesn't need uh, to, to involve anybody here. But Jesus doesn't do that in this scene. He, he, he involves people. His mother turns to the servants and tells them, whatever he says, do it. Now, Mary, obviously, Jesus' mother, is speaking about the immediate need. I mean, the, the, the reason she's giving this command is she's thinking about the fact they don't have any wine. This is going to embarrass the bridegroom. This is going to cause the wedding to run short. But what's interesting about the command that she gives the servants here is that when it comes to Jesus Christ, this command is always true. It is always true. There will never be a time when someone says of Jesus, do whatever he tells you and it not to be true and right and good. The entire thrust of Jesus's ministry, when you think about it, and really the, entri- the entire focus of the Christian's life can be summed up in two words, that Christ speaks to all of us um, through the scriptures, and that is follow me. Follow me. In other words, do what he says, whatever he says. Follow him. Don't just pay him lip service. Don't just say that you like him or that you think he's a wise teacher. Follow him. Whatever Christ tells you, do it. And here we see in this event where Jesus performs his first sign, this first miracle that he's showing, is not only what we said earlier last week, this prefiguring of his own wedding, but we see an invitation for others, not just Christ, but others to participate in the work of Christ by manifesting his glory. The servants here, though we don't know where they're spiritually are, where where they were in their relationship with God, we don't have any clue about that. And though it is clear they're unwittingly being involved in this, uh, this participate or participation in this miracle, what we see here is a, a pattern for obedience in the Christian life. And before we even explain what that is, it might be good to ask, is this reading too much into the text? I mean, is Jesus just happening to use in this particular sign, these people who happen to be there, these servants, and there may not be any intentionality or significance involved. And I think that's a fair question. We don't want to ever read too much into passages in Scripture. But in this case, there's an indicator that this is more than servants merely unwittingly helping Jesus 
perform a miracle. There's more going on here. In fact, there's a big hint that there is a far deeper reality at play than simply John retelling a story, um, and this just happened to be what Jesus used here. There's more here to be seen, and that hint is in verse 9. So let's look at it together. So after Mary gives the command to obey, anything that Jesus says to the servants here, after that, Jesus tells them, fill the jars with water and then draw out the, the, whatever's in the jars and bring it to the master of the feast to taste. Now notice the parenthetical statement, the little parentheses in, if you've got the ESV version, in verse 9. It says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew. So do you see that? Now, why does John mention that? Why does he mention that they knew? Of course they knew. I mean, they were the ones who were involved in the entire affair from the very beginning. Why would John waste ink to tell us this detail again? Well, there are uh, no, uh, there's nothing in Scripture that is wasted. There's no wasted ink at all in Scripture. Everything is intentional. There's a reason for this. John wants us to, to not forget that the servants knew that it was Jesus who had turned water into wine. That they not only saw him do this, but that they were participants in this sign And that's not an accident. That's not arbitrary. John is telling us that there's more to this aspect of the event than simply mere circumstance. By Christ involving the servants at this wedding in this sign that he's performing, he is inviting all who belong to him, every bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to participate in the same way. We are being invited to do whatever he tells us to do. We were being invited to follow him. The servants who drew the water knew. They knew that they had experienced something about Christ that nobody else at the party had knew or experienced. They saw and witnessed Christ manifesting his glory in a way that even the disciples who believed in him after they saw what went on did not see it like the servants saw it. They didn't experience it like the servants experienced it. There was something unique and profound about them being participants in this. And so there is a a deep connection between our obedience to Christ and the experience of seeing him and knowing him for who he really is. There is a link between how we obey what Jesus commands in the scripture, even if it's as simple and as basic as filling a jar with water. There's a a link, there's a connection between that obedience and intimacy with Jesus. We know something about him that we have experienced firsthand. And I think this becomes way more clear, and this is a first sign, this becomes more clear as we go deeper into the book of John, and we look at a conversation that Jesus has at the end of his earthly ministry, during the last few hours before he's about to go to the cross and die, he's about to leave his disciples. And this conversation reveals the same pattern that Jesus establishes in John 2, three years earlier, where he tells his disciples, 
you're going to see me after I go. You're going to see me after I'm gone. I'm not going to be physically in front of you, and you will see me, and let me tell you how I will manifest myself to you. This passage is in John 14, starting with verse 18. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, I want us all to, to see this, this text. This is hours before Jesus is about to die, and he's talking to his disciples. This is what he says, John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now listen to this verse, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So this is Jesus on his way to the cross, and we're talking about hours, hours before he's about to die. He's already told them, I'm going to die. And here he's comforting them, saying, listen, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. In other words, when he departs out of this world and he ascends to the right hand of his father so that the world cannot see him anymore, when that happens, he tells his disciples, you will be able to see me. You'll be able to see me even though the world can't see me. Those who follow Christ, those who are obedient to Christ, will be able to see him. Now, how is this possible? How can Jesus manifest himself to his disciples even after he's physically left this world? Well, this passage tells us how he intends to do it. Look at verse 21. Jesus connects seeing him, him manifesting himself with his disciples to obedience to his commands. Verse 21 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, So that's obedience. Having his commands and keeping his commands is observing what he has commanded. So obedience, whatever he says, Mary told us in John 2, do it. That's what this is. That person who keeps the commands of Christ is the one who loves him. And it is he to whom Christ will manifest himself to. There's a connection between obedience and seeing Jesus. And so the how of that is explained in the verses just above. Look at verse 19. He says, even though the world won't see me, you will. And then enigmatically, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. In other words, the way that you're going to see me is connected somehow to my resurrection from the dead, my living after I die. There's a link between his resurrection and how we'll see him. And we're going to get to that shortly because it's vital. But before we do that, let's look at what he continues to say. He says, in that day, in the day that he's going to manifest himself to us, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The language that Jesus is using here is that of profound unity. 
and profound intimacy between us and him and the Father. That we are, are so close to Jesus. That we've been knit so tightly to Christ that you cannot see where Christ ends and where we begin. It's this deep, personal intimacy for those who love Jesus. And he says here that we will know this. We will know it. It will be a reality for us. It won't just be a doctrine that we read in a book. It won't just be a theological fact that we know abstractly. It will be real to us. We will know that we are in Christ and that he is in us. Just like the servants at this party knew what Jesus had done when the master of the feast hadn't. But this conversation here between Jesus and his disciples continues because, think about this, these men have been walking with Jesus physically for three years. How can they possibly see him after he goes, after he's gone? How is it that Christ can manifest himself, his glory, his beauty, his worth, who he is, to his disciples and yet not manifest himself to the world. Like, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, remember the servants in John 2. They knew what Christ had done. Nobody else knew. The master of the, the ceremony, the master of the feast did not know. Apart from the disciples, they had no clue what Jesus had done except for the servants. The servants saw him manifest his glory. And that's the same thing here. Look at John 14. We're going to see how we can see as disciples of Christ him, but the world can't. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, which I think is funny. <laughs> Apparently this Judas did not want to be associated <laughs> with the other Judas, uh, who was Judas Iscariot. Judas, not Iscariot, let's just get that clear, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? and not to the world. This is the question we're asking. How is this possible? Jesus isn't physically here. We can't see him. How does he manifest himself? Jesus is going to tell us. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, this is remarkable. Jesus is explaining how he will manifest himself to his disciples despite the world not being able to see him. He says, if anyone loves me, they're going to keep my word and my father will love him and we, that's Jesus, the son of God and the father will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home with him. That's how the way that Christ manifests himself himself to his disciples, now that he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, is through us loving him and keeping his word, which is exactly what verse 21 had already told us. So there's this experience of knowing a deep intimacy with the Father and with the Son that comes through obedience to Christ's command an obedience that is born out of a love for him. For example, John 14, 15, Jesus says it another way. I think this is actually the clearest and most succinct way. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is, an evidence of your love for me is whether or not you obey what I've commanded you. And so Christ manifesting himself to his people is rooted not just in obedience to a command, but in the source of that obedience, which is a love and a devotion for Jesus. Do we love him? That's the question that's being asked ultimately here. It's not asking a question about what we say with our mouths. It's not asking even a question about what we think in our heads. What Jesus is asking, what I'm asking with Jesus about all of us, myself included, in verse 15 and in verse 21 is, if we claim to love him, do our lives reflect that claim? Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This is <clears throat> John, the same author who wrote the gospel that we've been reading. So he's sitting by Jesus, literally inches from him when Jesus is saying this stuff in John 14. Here's John, uh, 1 John 2, 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, know Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And then John says this, listen to this. By this, we may know that we are in Christ, in him, in Christ. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is bold stuff. This is bold stuff that John, who wrote the gospel we just read, is saying about Jesus and about us. He's saying that if we're not keeping the commands of Christ, if we, if we don't out of a love for him, keep his commands, it doesn't matter what we confess with our mouths. It doesn't matter what we say. We do not belong to him if we don't have any desire to keep his commands. He says that even if we say we know him and believe him and trust him, even if we confess that with our mouths and yet we are not following what he says and we do not keep his commands, John says here that we're lying. He says we are lying. He says in verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. Now, by what? He's saying this is how you assess whether or not you're in him. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's how we know that we're in Christ, that we desire to obey him because we love him. And at this point, we need to really make an important distinction because I think, <clears throat> I think we tend to, to see obedience to God's commands as a kind of just legalism. We have it in a category in our minds called legalism and like obedience to God's commands aren't, they're an Old Testament thing. They're, you know, now that we're in uh, the New Testament, now that we're part of the new covenant, keeping the commands of Christ is supplemental and additive. We might not use those words, but we would treat them that way. We would say, listen, I am saved by grace through faith alone and I'm saved apart from anything that I've done or will do. Obeying commands that Christ gives me is good and beneficial, but I am saved by trusting in Jesus. And that's 100% true. That is completely biblical. But the question that John is asking here isn't, 
what is the grounds or basis for our salvation before God? The question John is asking is, what does it look like to actually trust in Christ? What does faith really look like? We're not talking about what unites us to Christ ultimately, which is faith alone. Faith apart from works is what joins us to Jesus. What John is talking about here is what does a union with Christ actually look like? And that union with Christ looks like a love for Jesus that results in us pursuing obedience with our lives to everything he has commanded us. This doesn't mean perfect obedience. It does not mean perfect obedience. Um, and so don't read that into this. But what it does, and John makes that clear earlier in the book, that we are all sinners. Even people who have trusted in Jesus, they are going to sin. But it does mean that if we are, that it does mean that we are not to actively walk in sin, that we are not to be flippant about sin in our lives just because Jesus died on a cross for us and that we pursue a bearing of real fruit that comes from a love for Christ. And, and I think the distinction we need to make here, this is really careful distinction we need to make about what obedience is. We need to make a distinction between obedience that honors God and an obedience that dishonors him. There's an obedience that dishonors God. Obedience to God's commands in a pursuit of holiness is not legalism. Legalism is trying to earn our place before God. Legalism is trying to establish our own righteousness before God, which Paul tells us in Romans 9, 32, that was the main problem with the vast majority of the people of Israel as they were pursuing righteousness in the law. They were trying to establish their own righteousness, not pursuing it through faith. It wasn't mainly that there were rules back then, and now there aren't any rules. It was the question of, how is one made righteous? How is one justified? How is one made right before God? Is it by relying on and trusting in God's provision? Or is it by relying and trusting on your own ability? And John isn't talking about earning anything from God here. He knows that we can't do that. What he is talking about is, what does it actually mean? What does it physically look like to trust him and to love him? Which is exactly what Jesus was saying in John 14. Go back to John 14, 15. Listen to this. If you love me, this is Jesus, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is not interested in rule following for the sake of rule following. He's not interested in that at all. Rules and commands are nothing if they are detached from a love and devotion to Christ. In fact, you read the gospel accounts and his interactions with the Pharisees, you can see that Jesus actually hates and abominates any kind of obedience that does not pursue out of a love for God, from trusting in God and in his word. But if we do love him, his promise here is if we do love him, if we desire, if he's captured our hearts, if we are devoted to him and we trust him and we believe in him, Jesus is saying in verse 15, we will obey his commands. We will respond to his gracious commands, his loving instruction with glad obedience. 
And what we've been seeing here is that when we obey Christ out of love for him, then there is an intimacy that is experienced between us and him. There is a profound closeness and proximity. He manifests himself, his glory, to those who obey. And this is what happened at, in John 2 at the wedding. The servants knew what Christ had done. In fact, they had participated in it. They had been there with him, doing what he was asking them to do. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples just before the cross, before he ascends to the Father, before he leaves them. He's like, this is how you're going to know me. This is how you're going to see me when I'm gone. Through an obedience that is born out of a love and devotion to me. This is how I'm going to manifest myself to you. I'll show you me, my glory, through simple acts of obedience, like filling a jar up with water or bringing it to the master of the feast. Simple obedience where we are experiencing a deep, abiding intimacy with Jesus and the Father. Now, that might seem like an abstract concept, what does this look like in our lives? What does it look like to put flesh and bones on seeing Jesus through obedience? How do we see Jesus? How do we experience this kind of intimacy just by keeping his words and observing his commands out of a love for him? Well, it's connected to Jesus' statement back in John 14, 19. Remember this statement? Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. It seems out of place unless you understand what he's saying. The reason that this is placed in this statement that Jesus is making about obedience is that because of the resurrection of Christ, if your faith is in Christ and you really do love him, you have been united to him in his death and his resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. When he died, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, if your confidence in faith and trust is in him, you died with him too. And so did everything about you before that point. And when he rose, you rose with him. And everything that is true about him has been made true about you because you are joined to him. You belong to him. You are alive in Christ, not just physically alive, but you are spiritually alive, and that's all because he lives. He lives right now in you, and so when you are obeying his commands, when you are trusting in Christ, loving him, and doing what he has called you to do, it is, in fact, Christ in you doing the obedience. Through you, through your members, you are seeing Jesus Christ in your obedience. Listen to, listen to Paul in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's, he's died with Jesus on the cross. It is no longer I who live. Paul's dead, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So think about what Paul is saying here. Paul, the apostle, doesn't live anymore. Not the way he was before he met Jesus. He doesn't live anymore. Christ is the one who lives in him and through him. When Paul obeys, he is becoming a manifestation of Jesus in this world. 
seen by himself and seen by other believers around him and God willing by unbelievers as he gives them sight, Paul becomes a visual depiction, a dramatization of the Lord Jesus Christ in his own obedience. His obedience is the obedience of Jesus because Paul doesn't live anymore. Christ lives in him. Jesus Christ is the one who lives in him. And we see this probably most vividly and there's other passages that show this. Philippians 2 uh, is probably the clearest. I think it's 12 and 13. I didn't write it down here. <laughs> I think it's 12 and 13. Uh, where Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, he's talking to the Philippian church, as you have always obeyed. He's talking about obedience to the commands of Christ. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is an astonishing passage. This passage would get a hold of us. We would understand our obedience so much better. It's saying that our actions of simple obedience in everyday life In those actions, it is actually God Almighty, Christ Jesus himself, who is decisive and ultimate. He is the one giving us willpower to do it. He is the one giving us wisdom to make that judgment. He is the one giving us energy and strength to accomplish that obedience. He is the one that is bringing about every act of obedience in our lives in and through servants like those at the wedding. This is an amazing picture, and and this is why Paul, when he's saying this to the Philippians, says, listen, we do this with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That's how we work out our salvation. That's how we obey the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's how we obey in our lives, rooted in that reality, in simple acts of obedience to God out of love for Christ. We are seeing God in us, working through us to do obedience. We are seeing Christ in us. He's becoming visible. And we are experiencing in that moment, I mean, just think about this. You can't get closer to a person (laughs) than this. Closer than your skin. We are seeing an intimacy between us and Christ that is so close, so deep, that John would say, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You're the same because of what Jesus is doing in and through you. And Paul is saying that he gave himself up for us. This is what in Galatians 2.20, he says, this is why Christ died on the cross. The reason that this kind of obedience is possible, the reason why this kind of intimacy with Christ is possible is because of a bloody cross and an empty grave. There was a bloody cross where Jesus died to redeem us from our sins and an empty grave where he rose from the dead to give us new life. Those are the root. They are the fountain that makes everything we've been talking about this morning reality in our lives. Without our union to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we could never obey the way we ought to. We could do mechanical acts of obedience and adhere to rules and regulations by man, and even in the Bible. But what God's talking about here through John 
is a kind of obedience that is trusting in him. It is a pure kind of obedience that seeks to honor God by doing what he's commanded us to do because we love him, because we're devoted to him. Think about Jesus, uh, what he says in, in John 15, that the whole vine uh, analogy that he uses, which is a glorious analogy. John 15, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking to his disciples. Apart from me, there is not a single fruit you can bear. And he means it. He's talking about the kind of obedience that is born out of a devotion to him, a, a trusting in him, for the strength needed to do this. And so in the next few moments, during this next song, we're going to participate in communion. And um, this act of communion, the Lord's Supper, is reserved only for those who trust in Jesus Christ. It's reserved only for those who have received him. It means nothing for people on the outside of that covenant. And so if you have put your confidence in Christ, if you do believe in him and trust in him, then I would ask that as we do this during this next worship song that you ask in your heart as you come to Christ, ask to see him. I mean, ask him to manifest himself to you by granting to you the love for him that results in obedience. Plead with him for this, this precious intimacy that he talks about in John 14, that he's promised us who love him and obey his commands, and that we would, we would uh, be so devoted to him, so in love with him, that this experience of seeing him in our lives through simple acts of obedience would be something that we would relish and cherish, that we would approach with fear and trembling, in awe, that it is Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus in us, who is doing the obeying when we obey, that our lives are a visible manifestation of the glory, the worth, the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together that God would do this in us and through us, risen hope. Heavenly Father, oh, that we would see Jesus, your Son, Oh, that we would have the intimacy that is depicted in John 14 of the Father loving us and coming to us with the Son to live with us, to dwell with us, to make his home with us, that we would desire and long for that intimacy and that that desire and that longing, that love for God in Christ Jesus would manifest itself in simply following him and doing what Jesus's mother told the servants to do. Whatever he says, he will never lead you wrong. It may be hard, but whatever he says, do it. It may not feel profound, but when you do it, when you are doing it, it is Christ in you that's doing it. Father, may we feel that reality, especially in this current season in the middle of, uh, of a pandemic with all sorts of political turmoil and disharmony, um, racially, politically, theologically, there's so many different areas where there is a lack of unity and love. So much more now is needed, a, a devotion and a trembling at 
obeying what Christ has called us to, loving, graciously loving people, even at great sacrifice to our lives, Father God. Grant us in this season a compassionate desire to love people in our obedience to Jesus that we might pursue a greater intimacy that we would never have otherwise, Father God. I pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.